0: As I thought about um, this endeavor to uh, feed hungry children, my heart was drawn to this psalm. So we'll, to your great delight, uh, I wanted to, uh, I really was uh, hoping to preach through this this entire psalm, but I never got past verse 1, so... Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be short. It just means I'm not getting past verse 1. So we're just going to get to verse 1, and that's all we're going to get to. So let's open with prayer, and then let's study God's Word. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for what it does to our hearts, Lord. We need this Word. We need it to pierce us and change us and mold us and shape us, Lord. Left to ourselves, we are vile at best, Lord God, prone to wonder, God's shallow, selfish, and ignorant. But Lord God, this Word, properly taken in, transforms our minds and brings us, Lord, to the reality of who we are and who You are and why we're here and what we're to do to glorify You. And so, Father, will You use this tonight to help us In Jesus name. Amen. You know, when you when you think about um, situations that we face in life, you you think about how the the appreciation that we have for the good things in life, uh, you know, as you're sort of listening to uh, what Charlie had to say about the way that we tend to live and the things that we tend to take for granted, you know, the way to really enjoy those things is to be apart from those things, is to lose those things, is to be separated from those things. You know, I was thinking about this this morning as I was standing before the service out in the foyer and uh, Richard and Marsha Ladner came in. And you know, Richard's been going to this church for a hundred years. And I can tell you this, that for 99 of those years, he would just walk in the back door... And just come on in and sit down. But he doesn't do that anymore. In fact, he hugs me now. He's not a hugger. But he's so happy to be alive. Man, when you've been on your deathbed for six months, you appreciate health. Amen? You see, when you don't have something... You you get the reality of how valuable it is when you get it back, and it happens in simple ways. You know, you go out of town for a while, and uh, man, you come home, and boy, your spouse is nice. You know, your bed is comfortable. But if you just sort of grinding it out every day, you just start taking things for granted, and it just doesn't seem that that great. So my point is, is that when we're apart from something, it, it draws our heart to how wonderful it is when we have it. And and the the problem with this is that that makes sense until it comes to spiritual things, until it comes to you know actually when we're okay with being apart from something so long as we're going to get it back in the timetable that we think is is proper and in the nature in which it's going to play out is in accordance with our our will and purpose, but the Bible has a very different outlook on. The way things operate in God's economy. For example, in Romans 5, God uh, teaches this wonderful principle through the Apostle Paul that's sort of problematic for us. And it says that we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produce perseverance and that perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, I think we're all about hope, but I'm not sure we all want to ride down that train track to get there. Well, okay. There's a couple of us that don't want to do that. I mean, come on. That's not how we live our lives. That's not the way we embrace tribulation. I mean, Paul clearly has a totally different outlook than our mindset often is. And so the beautiful thing about the Psalms is that the Psalms are not are not some product of an academic endeavor. The Psalms are not some, you know wonderfully scripted out um ethereal instances that might have happened in some time place or space continuum the psalms are the real heart cry of real people in real situations and so when you approach the psalms when you read the psalms if you find yourself in a problematic place in life, a struggling place in life, there really is no greater source of encouragement than the book of Psalms. It is a wonderful, unbelievably gracious gift that God's given that has drugged me out of more ditches and more valleys and more dark places than I know that I have the, the absolute perfect on-demand counselor to minister to my heart. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week in the book of Psalms. But the problem is, is that oftentimes when we read the Psalms, we read them like they are from some academic endeavor. We don't bring ourselves into the reality of what's happening. And so, Psalm 63 represents a very uh, known, talked about, preached about, quoted. Uh, songs are written about it. But I just wonder... If you ever, have you ever just crawled, just crawled, drug yourself up to the throne of grace, just pulled yourself like a, like a, a, a crippled person who's fallen out of their wheelchair, just pull yourself up to the foot of the cross and just read a psalm, just take it in one word at a time, like your life hangs in the balance. And you see, that's really why I can't get past the first verse. Because of what is going on as David writes this psalm. This is a psalm that David writes. Um, You can see that it's him writing when he's in the wilderness of Judah. But really the question is, is that, well, He was in the wilderness of Judah on two occasions. And what occasion is this? See, the first time he was in the wilderness of Judah, he was running from Saul. And Saul was trying to kill him. And certainly that was a tough time. And the second time he was in the wilderness of Judah, he was running from Absalom. And it was kind of a tougher time because that was his son. And his son was actually trying to kill him. And had overthrown him and, and run him out of his own country. And the clue comes in verse 11 where David says, but the king shall rejoice in God. You see, that's the clear indication that this is the second instance. This is David in the wilderness being pursued by Absalom because he refers to himself as the king. And he wouldn't have done that if it was Saul who was chasing him. So we know the situation, we know the circumstance that really sort of with this sin, with Bathsheba, the wheels have begun to come off his life and it has sort of set off this chain reaction of, of just terrible events and consequences that have started to beat him down. And so this man who was once sort of on top of the spiritual world, if you will, is, finds himself just broken and beaten and defeated and struggling, just plain struggling. And so He comes in the midst of all this and He he speaks or cries out these words that are recorded for us. Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, You are my God. Early will I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh thirsts longs for you in a dry and a thirsty land where there is no water now I want you to just think with me for a minute what what does it tell us about about the fact that that he begins with oh god that his his initial encounter, the first words that come off his mouth. See, so many times when you're in a moment of desperation, you think about a time in your life when you've been desperate and you finally come to the person you need to talk to or the the place you need to get to. And you think about how critical the first thing that comes out of your mouth is because you want the hearer to understand and comprehend the gravity of the situation. In other words, you don't, you don't have any small talk with the 911 operator. You're getting to business. David's getting down to business. He says, oh, God. The Bible says in James chapter 5, verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Well, let him pray. In other words, David understands that in a moment of suffering, well, where are you going to run? You're going to run to God. And you're going to come to God and say, oh, God. Oh god i fill in the blank but you see that the 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 way he approaches god he says you you are my god you see we don't apply we we wouldn't use the phrase you are my about another person unless what unless we had an incredibly close and intimate relationship. Because really, I say you are my wife and I say you are my children. And then beyond that, the best you can do is maybe be my friend or my brother or my sister. But David says you are my possessive God. You're my God. You're a God that I know that I'm in relationship with. He's not hoping that. You're my God. He's not wondering if you're my God. He knows that he's his God. And he's coming, oh God, you are my God. From a position of confidence. From a position of knowledge. So in the midst of this struggle, in the midst of this wilderness, right off the bat, in the very first line, we recognize that David understands something. You see, and this is what I've been talking about for the last two weeks. It is so critical. Now, now listen, listen. Is there ever a time when we are more prone to get wound up and off track following our emotions than in a catastrophe? Here's a man who's in a catastrophe, who's clearly emotional. But what does he begin with? The facts. Don't you see? He's with the, he's not, he doesn't talk about how he feels. He doesn't talk about what he sees. He's getting there. But he starts with the facts. I cannot stress to you enough how critical this is. I'm telling you that the vast majority of these painful trips off of God's will are due to us ignoring the facts about God. And responding in accordance to the way that we feel. The facts are, He's God. The facts are, He's my God. And if you start there, you're going to be okay. So David establishes the facts. Then he goes into other things. Then he moves into, early will I seek you. In other words, he says, I'm looking for you. I'm seeking after you. He's already established, you're my God. This isn't a God he's trying to go find somewhere that he's going to meet somewhere. It's his God, but he's he's seeking him. It's like when a parent has lost their child earlier this week. Uh, we were uh here working, it was the end of the day, and I was actually on my way out to leave, to go. Many of you got the email. And and we, I saw somebody, we were working and uh, Tim had been working on the floors in the nursery. And so the doors were all open. He had the big fan blowing everything out. And so you could just walk right into the church, which is, you know, one day a year. And someone just walked in. And I don't know who it was. I, we just saw a shadow go by. And so we went to go investigate and here's this lady. And she's just sobbing, covered with tears. What, what's wrong? And she said, I can't find my daughter. She's 12 years old and she's gone. And she was hysterical. And so uh, I was here and Steve was here. And so we we just abandoned everything and went on this massive hunt for this girl. Then pretty soon her grandfather showed up and then her aunts and her uncles and her nieces and her nephews and then one patrolman, two patrolmen, three. Then pretty soon this whole place was covered with people in every neighborhood. People were traipsing through the woods back there searching for this little girl. And let me tell you something. When she was found, you... Everyone said, well, what happened? Well, where was she? I said, I don't know. No one could talk. I mean, there was just wailing of joy. I mean, it was scary. David is saying, I am seeking you in that way, God. This word early, it it is the Hebrew word for the dawn. It means that earnestly, immediately, that initially, that nothing else comes before this seeking. This is the priority of my life, to seek God in this way. Now, notice the Bible has so much to say about this seeking. Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Amos chapter 5, for thus says the Lord God, the, the God of Israel, seek me and live, Jeremiah 29, and you will seek me and find me. And when you search for me with all your heart. Now, the question I have is why would the Bible have so much to say about seeking if it weren't true that there was going to be times in the lives of all believers when we were in a position where we needed to respond to God the way David is. You see, these passages aren't referring to people who don't know God. These are passages referring to people who know God, people who are Promise to be His people, people who are being ushered into the promise of His covenant. And God's saying, you seek me and you'll find me. In other words, they know Him. He's their God. He's not a stranger. And yet God is teaching us to seek, to seek, to seek. Now notice it doesn't say that David, you know, says, first I will seek you. It says, you're my God, then I will seek you. Now, what what is that teaching us? Well, a very simple spiritual truth that if He's not your God, you won't seek Him. You didn't just wake up one day and say, you know, today would be a good day to seek. God, I think I'm going to do that today. That's not at all what happened. That's not what happened. So you see, this seeking is something that comes from the Lord. In other words, for example... In Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, Adam and Eve in the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? Who's doing the seeking? God's doing the seeking. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus said in Luke 19, chapter 10, For the Son of Man not, has come to seek and to save that which is lost. You see, who's the, who's the author and finisher of our faith? Who's the, who's the one who's, who's initiating this seeking? Who's the one who's revealing himself that we might know him, that he might become our God, that we would then seek him? You see, that's how this works. Romans chapter 3 verse 11. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. None. But God reveal himself. And then we ought to be seeking after Him. But it's not a guarantee. You see, I believe that there are many people who know the Lord, but who seek after other things. Hence, much of the suffering that's brought on because of our rebellion, because we're seeking other things. We're, we're basically seeking comfort and... And and security and idols and things of this world and not of the Lord and it only returns void. See the no the way that you know that you've met the real God is that a hunger and a thirst within you develops for Him. That is the the key. Notice the next thing David says: "For my soul thirsts for You, my flesh longs for You." In other words. My insides and my outsides, my spiritual being and my physical being, all are longing and throbbing for you. I read a quote some time ago as I was uh, actually preparing a, 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 a series of talks on the issue of worship. And I came across this quote that says, It is a mark of spiritual barrenness in a church when people come to worship to fulfill a duty and to keep a habit rather than to satisfy an appetite. I like it. It's a mark of spiritual barrenness in a church when people come to worship to fulfill a duty and to keep a habit rather than to satisfy an appetite. You see... The sense of his absence in David's life is evidence that he was once touched by him. And so the longing of, Oh God, you are my God, is what leads to this soul and this flesh that longs for him. Apart from one, there cannot be the other. And it's so important to know this. People can intellectually, they can with their mind, they can know that they're living a life that's dishonoring to God. I see it all the time. And so intellectually they can understand that. And then they can read their Bible or they can listen to me preach and they can surmise what I've said or what the Bible says and they can relate that to their ungodly situation. They can know that what they're doing is not right. And sometimes they will make adjustments or changes in their life and they will actually move their life in the direction of God, but it's simply been an academic or intellectual endeavor. It, the whole thing has been translated by a simple act of, well, this isn't working, so let me try this. That is not at all what's going on with David. You see, that will never lead to hungering and thirsting for righteousness The the soul that longs desperately to be in the presence of God is a soul that knows the touch of God. You cannot long for something that you haven't seen, that you haven't felt, that you haven't been touched by. You see, you can't worship a God you don't know. You can merely sing. You can present externally all sorts of things. But that's not worship. To worship God, you have to know the God you're worshiping or it is not worship. And so he says, I'm in a dry and a thirsty land where there is no water. You know, as I, I thought about this, I thought, when I'm in the wilderness, I see the same things with my eyes that I see when I'm not in the wilderness. But they look different. Everything looks dry and parched to me when I'm in the wilderness. I don't see fertile grounds. I don't see places to drink living water. I I see barrenness where I once saw life. I want you to understand that the wilderness can come, and everything physically around you can remain unchanged. Have you ever had that feeling where things just weren't right, and you couldn't really put your finger on it? You looked around, and you just uh, you you were thinking, well. You know, the kids are doing fine. My marriage is doing fine. Things seem to be doing okay. I mean, my bills are paid. I don't have some, you know, I'm not diagnosed with some horrible disease. I mean, I'm alive. Things are okay. But something's just not right. It's the wilderness. It's the wilderness. You see, sometimes there is a drastic change that thrusts us into the wilderness but sometimes there's just a subtle shift in our heart and and what i hope that you understand is that the reason you know that you're in the wilderness when you're there is because you know what it's like to walk on the path of righteousness and grace and love and repentance You see, that's why you miss it. That's why it's not there. And the mistake that we are so prone to make about this is that sometimes we find ourselves in the wilderness due to our foolishness. And in God's loving way, because He cares for us and because He's right and always perfect and on time, He, as a perfect parent, just shepherds us back to where we need to be. But sometimes we're just in the wilderness because we need to be in the wilderness. Because it's good for you and it's good for me. To long to be with God. It's good for your heart to crawl sometimes and to long and for your mouth to be dry and for your eyes to burn as you just long for God to rescue you. It's good for you because it makes you appreciate who He is. It makes you understand what He's about and it grows you in sanctification like nothing else will. And so, I think what David would have us to see from his life in just this first verse is simply this. When the wilderness comes, Try spending less energy on why the wilderness is here and more energy on who the solution is. Because it's it's for some reason our default mechanism to just engage ourselves in endless mental debates and endless conversations about why and about what and about what's the reason and and God, how come I don't understand? And Lord, how's this ever going to be good? And, And can I just say, wham, wham, wham? Hey, is He your God? Then go to Him. It doesn't matter the reason. He's the solution. In other words, Hey, if, if I know that I've got a medicine that's going to treat every known disease on the planet Earth, then I don't need to spend the rest of my life trying to get a diagnosis. I just need the medicine. And so David, David's not, we, we, we have to investigate to find out what's going on in this life. What does that tell us? When you're in a valley, when you're in the wilderness, isn't all you want to talk about is the fact that you're in the wilderness and your reason and rationale as to why you're there, that's what I want to do. That's not what David does. He doesn't say anything about that. He says, "Uh -uh. Oh God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul and my body long for you. Sounds like a good plan. Now what about people who find themselves in the wilderness, but who can't say, Oh God, you're my God. Because, you, you know, I hear, I hear that cry a lot, but in a slightly different way from the way David cries. I hear a lot of, oh God, coming from people who can't say, he's my God. They're just saying, oh God, in hopes that someone might hear and that something might happen. And so I thought about, I thought about the day the little girl was missing. And the whole time that I was running around looking for her, all I could think about is what if it was my daughter who was gone? And so at one point, uh, you know, the first, after the first 10 minutes of chaos, we sorta of ended up back here and I was going this way and Steve was going this way and the mom was coming this way and we all kind of our paths met and I just said stop and we got in a circle and Steve and I put our arms around her and we said god you know where this girl is you know where she is will you help this mama find this girl Will you do that? And I can't help but wonder, what was she thinking when I said that? Because I didn't know where her girl was. And I didn't know what she looks like. I've never met her. I don't know what happened. I don't know anything about the situation. But I can tell you what I did know. I knew who I was talking to at that moment. And I knew that He knew. And I knew that He heard me. And I know He knows my voice. And I know He responds when I cry. And so I said, Lord, You know where she is. So why don't You just show us? Just show us. Show her. Blow her mind. Let her see. That right by where she lives, there's a funny-shaped building. And every Sunday and every Wednesday, there's some funny-shaped people that go in. I love you. To worship a God who's ours. He's our God. That's who He is. So you know what? There's 131 kids up in South Dakota in the wilderness. Maybe we can bring them some food. But in the meantime, where they live and what they face sure be amazing if they could say, Oh God, you're my God. See that's that's what matters. So is David in a? Is it a bad thing where David is? I don't know. Depends on how you look at it. What about you? How will you respond? In the wilderness. Let's stand, bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord God. And we thank you that in just a few short statements, you can teach us so much. Father, thank you. I thank you on behalf of all my brothers and sisters that are here, Lord God. Just corporately right now, we just say, God, we we love you so much. We thank you so much, Lord. I thank you for all the times that the lives in this room have been totally just empty, defeated, crushed, and buried. And we've just crawled to you, Lord, with the last bit of strength that we've had. And Lord God, You've met us there. And You've picked us up. And You've given us food to nourish us. Lord, You've given us living water to breathe life into us. God, You've encouraged us through Your Spirit, Lord God. You have shown Yourself mighty through answered prayer. And God, for that we say thank You. Glory be to You, Lord God. That you, Father, that we've we lived this testimony, so many of us here. We've been right where David is, Lord. Father, I thank you that you are always faithful and always good. And Lord God, I pray tonight that you will remind us, remind us of the sweetness of getting to you In the wilderness, Lord God, it makes the view from on high so much more precious. Father, we're grateful for how You love us. Lord God, if there's anyone here that that can't say You're my God, Lord, tonight I pray that they would simply respond to You in faith, knowing and believing the facts of what You say, that whosoever believes in You would not perish, but have eternal life. God, we love You and we praise You. In Jesus' name.